Good morning, everybody. Well, this morning we're going to continue in our study. We've been looking at with the theme of so you want to you want to go back. Um, this has started a few weeks ago, and we've been looking in the, in the book of Hebrews, and we'll continue that this morning. We'll actually be in Hebrews chapter 10, if you want to take your Bibles and turn there, that would be great, because that's where we're going to spend the majority or all of our time really today. By way of reminder, I just want to remind you what, what the book is, is about. The author of Hebrews is writing to a people who have begun to fall away f- from Christianity. They were people who came to Christ, and in fact, uh, I believe the book is written to all Christians everywhere, but the predominant group that he's talking to, the author is talking to, is Hebrew believers. And these are people who, who by faith accepted Christ into their lives, and now we're starting to go back. The, the persecution of the time was uh, growing great. Um, they were being ostracized for their faith. They were being persecuted. Their, their possessions are being plundered, and, and they were finding a great weight of what was going on in their lives. I see it today, too. Maybe the circumstances are different. People aren't going back to Judaism, but I see a number of people that are starting to move away from the Christian faith, from faith in Christ. They're starting to change that and what that looks like and how that's defined. And I find it concerning. I find it concerning that that more and more people are losing sight of who Jesus is, even as, as the survey that Greg has shared and I had shared in the past weeks of the number of people just in the evangelical church seeing things in regards to the scriptures and Jesus and what he had done has just changed. We're not talking in the world, we're talking within the evangelical church. And to me, I find that alarming. Some people would tell me that's progressive. I don't know that God's word has changed. I don't know that the truth has changed about who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And that we find that in the very basis of what we believe in the person of Jesus. And that's really what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate. He's reminding them of who Jesus is and what Jesus had accomplished. And that if they go back to Judaism, they're going back to something that's inferior And he begins in his argumentation of the book of of Hebrews and he talks about how Jesus is better than, we're superior to. In fact, I put this up here. Oh, man. It only happens, oh, there it is. It only happens the second hour. I'm telling you, the first hour it went through like, like clockwork. And so when we talk about how God communicated to his people, to Israel. Israel was to be a light to all the other nations. Through Israel, the other nations was to hear of God's goodness, of what God had done, what God had accomplished. So when we talk about how how communication took place, God spoke, and it tells us in Hebrews 1, many ways. In times past, he has spoken many ways, but now has spoke to us through his son. And that Jesus was better than, was superior to the prophets. And the prophets were held in a high esteem because they were the ones who communicated the things of God. But Jesus was superior to that. Then they goes on and the author of Hebrews talks about the angels and that Jesus was superior to the angels. Remember, how did Mary find out what was going on with her? It was through Gabriel and the announcement of that. 
the ark, uh, uh, boy, I just went blank. Anyway, Gabriel, the angel, and, and, and how he communicated. Well, Jesus was superior to that. And the author of Hebrews continues on, and he talks about Moses. I mean, Moses, I mean, in, in, in Hebrew faith, I mean, Moses was like kind of it because he went on the mountain, he met with God and God hand wrote out the Ten Commandments and he carried him down and there was a glow from his face from being around God and he had to put a veil over his face because the glow was so great. I mean, now you're saying Jesus was greater than Moses? Yeah, because Moses was a servant in the house, but Jesus is a son over the house. And so the author of Hebrews, he goes through these distinctions in which how God has communicated in times past, and he says Jesus was greater than these, and we looked at that before. How did the people communicate with God? They went through a high priest, the high priest, once a, one day a year on, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where he would enter into the Holy of Holies. And last week I shared with you a diagram of the tabernacle. Okay. I don't know if it's me or you, but thank you. Um, and entered, entered into the, to the diagram. And so here in the Holy of Holies, where the most holy place is where God was. And the high priest would enter in one time in a year. And he didn't enter without blood. It wasn't his own blood, but he did not enter without blood. Because we looked at it last week, Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God required that for the forgiveness in their souls, for the, for the covering that would take place that would look off to the perfect sacrifice that would come. And so there was this picture that once a year, it had to be, had to be quite a day. If you were a Jew, and here's the Day of Atonement, and you're gathering outside the tabernacle, you're all outside here, and you're listening, and the high priest wore a robe, and at the bottom of his robe was bells, and you're just kind of hoping that you keep hearing bells, that, because as long as you heard movement, you knew that God was accepting your sacrifice. They didn't know. They didn't know what, how God would judge. And thank God we don't go through that anymore, amen? And so, so then also priests was another way in which, in which they entered the tabernacle and, and, and uh, they daily or weekly, depending on the, on the sacrifice that was required for the sin that was committed, they came and they did their work out here in the holy place. And, and so this was this continual offering of sacrifices and sins and, and the author of Hebrews was saying go back to my, my diagram there you go well, the author of Hebrews is saying hey we went through the high priest and, and, and the priest and today in chapter 10 he talks about Jesus in the first part of chapter 10 being the better sacrifice the greater sacrifice because you don't enter you don't enter without, without a sacrifice why? because sin and rebellion required death. We saw that last week. Sin and rebellion required death. So the author of Hebrews describes the sufficiency of this sacrifice that Christ brought and, and that he was sufficient. So if you will, take your, take your Bibles and look at chapter 10 and we'll begin in verse 1. As we kind of move through this chapter, there's several things that are going on. He says in, in verse 1, he goes, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities. Remember, the tabernacle was a reflection, a shadow of the things that were to come. And he goes on, he says, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. That idea of make perfect means the idea of removing or the removal of the guilt to provide an access for the worshiper into the presence of God. 
That was the reason why, because of sin, there was guilt, there was judgment. So in order to approach God, there had to be, there had to be sacrifice, there had to be blood. And they continued to do these sacrifices because they could not address this issue. They could not make perfect the worshiper. And so he goes on in verse 2, he says, Otherwise, they wouldn't, they would, uh, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the, so the author of Hebrews is reminding them, okay, they keep entering in with these, the blood of bulls and goats. And they continue to do that because they don't address the issue of guilt. They don't address the issue of sin. They don't address the conscience of who the person is. And so the outward cleansing, but it didn't change the heart, didn't change who they were. And so they continued to do it. In fact, the continuation of doing these sacrifices only reminded them of their sin. Thank God we live in grace. Think about that. Praise God for grace. You're going to hear more about that in a minute, but I just wanted to say it there. Verse 5 goes on, consequently, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But the body have you prepared for me. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then verse 7, it says, then I said, behold, I have come to do, the, do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. He's quoting Psalm 40, verse 6. I always found this amazing. I remember it was Mike, uh, Hosea 6 eight, where God said, I desire mercy more than sacrifice and the love of God more than, than burnt offerings. And it was this, this, this phrase always got me when I first came to Christ. Because I always go, well, God, didn't you offer those? Didn't you demand those things to be brought, that they were supposed to bring these offerings, that they were to bring these sacrifices? And here again in Psalm 40, he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but the body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have not taken pleasure. And, it, and again, you kind of go, well, okay, God, but didn't you call these things? Because they never settled the issue of what was going on in the worshiper. In fact, in, I think it's Isaiah chapter 2, where God said, enough. I've just had enough of your sacrifices. I've had enough of your offerings. Because you come with blood on your hands. Because in the continual action, there became this kind of a, uh, just an attitude of, 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 of the worshiper where they didn't acknowledge God. That's why communion is so important. You know that? It reminds us of what Jesus has done. And that's why there's a warning about not to take that lightly. Because it reminds us of his body being broken, his blood being shed, and, and it's to create within us a thankfulness. It doesn't save us, but it reminds us of what Jesus has done. But in the reality of what they were facing, they were continually doing this, and it just kind of became nonchalant. We do that today, don't we? I mean, some of you probably walked in today and was like, well, I'm just going to get my worship, and God's going to be happy, and... Hey, this is a serious time to worship. It's a time where we go, we humble ourselves and we go, what a God, what are you saying? It's a time when we come together as a body of Christ and when, when there's divisions and there's hurt, we heal those things. When there's, when there's difficulties within the body, we realize and remind ourselves that we're part of the body of Christ, that we're part of the people of God and that it's him that we answer to and it's not about us. 
It's about him and what he wants to accomplish through us within the body of Christ. It's an important time to gather together and we should not take it lightly. In fact, he goes on in verse eight, he says, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to law. You did that because of the law that was required. Verse nine, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And he, Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Let that just set for a minute. Jesus didn't come just to kind of do this continual offering. He came for once and of all, once and for all, to settle the issue. And by doing that, he did God's will. He did what the old covenant, what the old covenant sacrifices could never do. The perfecting of those who would worship by faith. Perfecting those who would approach him through faith and have access to God. Where Jesus addressed guilt and he addressed and, and declared his people justified and sanctified. And he did this through the offering of his own body once and for all. That's an, that's an imperative statement for us as believers. We sang it before, right before this, this message started. It's why we gather. It's why we're here. It's why we call Christ our Lord. It's why we surrender ourselves even when at times when God doesn't make sense. It's why we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, the God who has demonstrated mercy and grace. We bring ourselves and we yield ourselves to him because of what Jesus has done once and for all. You see, Jesus is the way. And I love how he goes on in verse 11, the author says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Did you hear that? The same sacrifices which never can take away sins. I, I, I thought, man, I'm sure glad I'm not in ministry then. Again, I thank God for the new covenant. Can you imagine every day, offering sacrifice after sacrifice that doesn't take away sin but we are doing it to remind us of the horridness of what sin has done in the separation of God and his people and that God is working and showing that a sacrifice is coming that would satisfy and he goes on the author of Hebrews in verse 12 he says but when Christ had offered for all time I love this term all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single, verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For all time, Jesus has established this. And so for the author of Hebrews to see these, these folks going back, these believers, these Christians, going back to Judaism, he's crying out, there's no place to go. Jesus settled it once and for all. He's not continually going in and offering himself over and over and over again because his sacrifice accomplished the will of God. His sacrifice, once and for all, in a single sacrifice, satisfied the issue, and he brought us and God together. 
It's, it's a beautiful picture, and I thank God for his grace. I thank God for his mercy. I like that term, all time. You know that means forever, right? That means never a time when it's not true. That means that when you've received Christ into your life, there's never a moment where you're not his. Think about that because of the work of Jesus and what he has done. And it's a contrast. I love the contrast between them offering day after day. And when Jesus offered, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. You know why the priests stood all day doing their sacrifices? Because the work wasn't done. And so they go all day offering sacrifice, never sitting down. Jesus offered once, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he's waiting until all things are commenced by the word of God. He is the way. And I love him, in case you didn't catch it, verses 15 through 18, the author of Hebrews drives it home. He says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them, he's quoting from Jeremiah 31. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Verse 17, then he adds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Boy, that's gotta get an amen, huh? He's not gonna remember our sins no more. Because Christ, once and for all, he had settled this. And I love verse 18. He says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Did you hear what just, I just read? You know, I know we're not like people that get all excited in our church and jump up and down. Where there is forgiveness of these. What's he talking about? Of these sins of these lawless deeds, of the rebellion. There's forgiveness because of what Jesus has done. There is no longer any offering of sin. All, that, all those priests kept going time and time again. Author of Hebrews saying, you're gonna go back to that? There's no more an offering. There's not an offering left. Now, <clears throat> I want you to understand this because in verse 19 is kind of the apex of this whole argument. It's the climax. He's actually gonna sum up Everything he's just said through the first 10, 10 chapters through verse 18. All of this argumentation that we've been talking about. Verse 19, he says, therefore, brethren, we're brothers. He's literally the idea of brothers and sisters. Dear, therefore, Christians, therefore, those in the church, therefore, brothers, because or since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a high, great high priest over the house of God. I want to stop there for a minute. In those two verses, he really summed up his whole argumentation of what he's been talking about through these first 10 chapters. He says, since we have confidence, there's a confidence to enter, and it's literally the idea of access it's the idea of a way into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by his sacrifice. He just settled that in these last 18 verses because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. By a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. Now I want to go back here to the, to the temple for a second. Remember, there was no way one person a year only came. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he 
And he gave up his spirit. Right before he did that, he said, it's finished. And he breathed his last. And it tells us in Matthew that after that happened, the veil was ripped from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom to the top, but top to the bottom. And what did that imply? That implied there was now access into the presence of God. Go to that last slide I have, if you would, please. So we've been talking about how does, how does God's people, how do they communicate? Well, <clears throat> now there's, there's no more this idea of going through prophets and angels. God communicates through Jesus. He's saying we have confidence when he says this. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by what he did, by a new and living way. This is why I don't go to a priest to represent me before God. This is why I don't do sacrifices to represent me before God. This is why by faith I know that it's not by my good deeds or how I discipline my life and try to produce this Christian life isn't what saves me. This is how I know. It's through Jesus, because he made a new and living way by the sacrifice of his own blood, by the sacrifice of his own flesh. That's why communion is so important that we do not forget these things, dear people of God. And he's calling these Christian believers, these Hebrew believers, and he's calling them to remember that you have confidence you know how you come here? See, when they heard here, it was only when God chose. And, and when they were represented, they could only go through a priest. But you know how we go now? There's only one way, through faith. It's all I have. It's all you have. It's faith. It's faith to believe that what God has said, he has done. It's faith to believe that what Jesus did in a single sacrifice, he settled for once and for all. That, that issue that we had between us and God, and Jesus settled that. You see, the scriptures tells us there is one mediator. Listen to me. There is one mediator between God and us. You know who that is? It's Jesus. There's no other way, and I know someone will come to me and say, boy, you believe in that, that Christian faith is so exclusive. Yes, because there's only one name under heaven by which people can be saved. And that's the name of Jesus. There's only one path. There's only one. And it's through Jesus. And the author of Hebrews understood this. And he's telling them, don't go back. Dear Christian today, dear people of God, do not go back. Do not lose your faith. Do not lose your hope. Do not forget that what you have before God is simply your faith in what God has done through his son. There's not another path. There's not another direction. There's not another way to go. It's through Christ. And the author of Hebrews says, we have confidence. Come on, amen, hallelujah. I mean, we have confidence to enter into the presence of God through his son because of what he has done. And if that doesn't get us excited, I don't know what will because it, it thrills my soul. There is no other name. I don't go any other way. I don't go any other place. And dear person today, if you're here and you haven't received Christ in your life, you know what? Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. There's no other way. There's no one else to look to. There's no other path. Every other path I've looked at, you had, to, you had to do something. You had to prove yourself. You had to change something. You had to do all that. We depend on one person. It's by faith, Jesus. We will never 
be enough without Jesus. And the author of Hebrews, he goes on and he says, as a result of this, if we know this, in fact, as he said, over the house of God, the, I love that last part, the great peace over the house of God, he's not a servant in the house, he's a son over the house, and he's our high priest. He says, there's three things we should do. In verse 22, he said, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Some people would try to make this kind of a baptismal regeneration. But that's not what he's talking about. The author of Hebrews is saying, because of what Jesus has done, we've already been cleansed. It's already been settled. What we need to do is draw near. We need to approach. We need to associate with true hearts, genuine hearts, hearts that are sincere, not hearts that just kind of go through the motion again and again and again. I made God happy today. Well, I went to church. God's got to be happy. I prayed, I read my Bible, God's gotta be up. You know why I read my Bible? Because I wanna know what he has to say. I can read from cover to cover. It doesn't make me any better in the standing that, with God than it does who I stand in Christ. He is my righteousness, he is my savior, he is my redeemer, he is the one who calls me his own. And he approached that with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. I like that part there where he says, full assurance of faith. You know why people pull back? Because they lose faith. They start looking at the world. They start reading all the things in our media. They read all the things that are going on. Fear grips their hearts. They start getting all riled up. And you know the reality of it is, is there's only one that I need to approach and that's Jesus. My God can see me through these paths when I approach him with a true heart that is full assurance of faith. And he goes on in verse 23, he says, let us hold fast. Literally that word idea of holding fast is the idea to hold down. It literally means to master. It means to master. And it's the idea to hold fast <clears throat> the con confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. I love this verse because it's the idea to hold fast to that hope, that confession of hope, that confident expectation that I believe that God will do exactly what he said he will do. You know, I believe Jesus is coming again. You know that? You know why I believe that? Because he said he would. I believe though the grave may take my body I know that my God will raise me. Why? Because God said he would. It's a confession of our hope. It's what we hang on to. And we need to master that. And he says without wavering, it's kind of an interesting term. It has the idea to unbend. In fact, they would use it of a, like a reed that would bend over. I think the best illustration is I, I have a tendency to start loading up my arms. You ever do that? And then you just grab a glass without thinking about it and you stick it in there. Oh, there's something on the floor and what happens, the content bends over, right? And the picture is, is that what, what do we do? We, we, we lose it. And the picture is that we're to hold fast our confession of hope. We're not to be reckless and allow it to bend over, allow it to, 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 to spill out, allow it to slip away. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Because we rest in him. We don't lose grip of our faith and of our confession of hope because we know that God will fulfill the very things he said he would do. Amen, amen, amen. It is true. 
It is true. It is true. And dear people of God, we need to be a people that hang on and hold and master our confession of hope. It's something that we have. And we need not lose it. In fact, he goes on and he says in verse, verse 24, and let us consider, that idea consider literally means to think of, ways to think of how to stir up one another to love and to good works. I like that term, stir up. I'm one of those kind of people that kind of stirs things up with always, not always meaning to. Just kind of gets things stirred up, right? But this word here, stirred up, literally means to stimulate, to encourage It can even be as strong as to provoke. And the idea of what the author is saying here in verse 24 is that we're to take a very serious concern into the very spiritual well-being of those around us. That we need to be concerned about the spiritual life of those that are around us. That's why it's so important as a body of believers that we come together. That when there's hurt and there's division and there's separation, that we heal those things. Because we're to stimulate one another and we're to encourage one another because we're concerned about one another spiritually. And he doesn't stop there, but in verse 25 he goes, and not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's interesting that word neglect, it literally means to abandon, to forsake. Here he's talking about those who are abandoning the faith and forsaking the faith and going back to Judaism. I've seen many use this passage to kind of beat on the believers to say, hey, you gotta be here at church every Sunday. If you've been in the church, you probably have heard that before. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is those who are turning away from the faith. But listen, what does he tell you to do next? To encourage, but encourage one another. Now listen, when you're not meeting in the body of Christ, you're not encouraging one another. So there's a two side here. You see, it's when we gather that we encourage one another. And all the years of ministry, and someone may challenge this, that's fine. All my years of ministry, I've always realized the more that I see people move away from the church, the more I see them move away from their faith. And the more I see people that get involved around the the body of Christ, the more I see them grow in their faith. Isn't that so true? When they isolate, we lose faith, we lose hope, we lose trust. And when we gather together, we encourage. Today, there was someone that that I encouraged because of something they're going through and they shared it with me and I can encourage them. It wouldn't have happened if we hadn't seen each other today. Probably wouldn't have reached out otherwise. He says, but to encourage each other even the more as you see the day drawing near. Dear people of God, It tells us, Jesus said, if you see the blossoms on the fig tree, you know the time is at hand, right? They're talking about the end times and all these things. And they said, when will these things happen? And Jesus said, when you see the blossom on the fig tree, you know your redemption's coming. I mean, I'm looking at our world and I'm starting to go, man, I'm seeing wrong called right and right called wrong. I'm seeing things that I never thought I would see in my lifetime in the belief system, not only in our world, but in in the church today. And it sure seems like there's some buds happening on that fig tree, right? So what he's telling us is even more as we see that day drawing near, you know what we're supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be stimulating and encouraging one another unto love and good works. We're to be taking a spiritual concern into the spiritual well-being of those around us. We need to be actively involved within the body of Christ 
that I might be encouraged and that you might be encouraged, that we would not lose hope and we would not lose faith. I know this is because in the, in the final passage or the final section here of this, of this chapter, the author of Hebrews gives a warning. And it's a, it's a harsh warning. People take it different ways. Some see it as kind of a, um, uh, boy, I just went blank on the word, just kind of a, a hypothetical situation. In other words, it's if it were possible, but it's not kind of a deal. Some see it as a loss of salvation. I don't see that because of what I know the scriptures to teach. And some just see it as just a strong warning to those because he calls these people that he's writing to, he calls them those who have been sanctified. And it's a strong warning. We don't like these warnings. We don't like being told, especially here in America, we don't like being told anything, do we? But he's warning us, and he says in verse 26, it starts with four, so he's continuing the thought of what he just said in in 24 and 25. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, if I willingly continue on, deliberately continue on, rejecting Christ, you know what waits for me? There's no sacrifice for sins. In fact, he goes on, and I'm going to read this section, and then we'll go back and make a couple comments. But verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Well, we don't like that, do we? Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, has been saint, or by which he, has, he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's harsh. And the reality is, dear people of God, when we, when we walk away, what are we saying? In fact, he, he describes some things. He uses an Old Testament illustration where if someone was caught and there was two or three witnesses, they were judged. And he's saying if they did that in the Old Testament, how much more would there be consequences for those who would reject? Now, here's something I'm going to say, and, and, and I know some of you aren't going to sit well with this. There are consequences. There are. In fact, he goes on, and he says here in verse, uh, I think it's 20, 29, he says, how much, more, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? That word spurn has the idea to trample. I remember as a little kid, we went to visit one of our relatives at the graveyard, and I didn't know. I was with my grandmother. My grandmother had a way of getting my attention, and a lot of grandmothers do, but mine especially did. And I can remember, I'm just walking along, right? Well, you know what I'm doing? I'm walking right across the grave. Next thing I knew, my grandmother, like, don't you trample on that grave. I mean, she got after me. Now, you're going to respect that person. You're going to respect that. And she went on, she had a little statement. And I, and I think of this as the same idea, that if all of a sudden you're walking away from Christ, what have you just said? You've trampled on the things he did. You've trampled on the things. Here's the one who's superior to the, the, the prophet, superior to the angel, superior to Moses, the high priest who is sufficient and the sacrifice is sufficient. If you reject that, what have you done? You've trampled it. 
You've considered, in fact, he talks about the very next part as you've, you've profaned the blood of the covenant. You've, you've made common the blood of Christ. If Christ's blood isn't able to do what he said he would do, you've just made it commonplace. And people are walking away. So what are they doing? There's a consequence. There's a judgment. In fact, it says outrage of the spirit of grace. I was kind of interested by that word outrage. It has the idea to insult. And I, I don't know. I was thinking about what, what does that look like? That when you reject the spirit who is convicting us of righteousness, of judgment, he's convicting us of these things and we push it away and we ignore it. Are we insulting? Is that the idea? Are we outraging? That we live in a time of grace whereby all we need to do is believe and have faith in what God has said he would do and we reject it. What have we done? We've outraged even the spirit of grace. We've made commonplace the blood of Christ. Do you not realize that God will judge his people? And that isn't something that I necessarily want to face. And I think the author's point in these verses, and even though most, most of the time I found a lot of people kind of sidestep these, these passages, I think the main point of the author is the point is the seriousness of the act of rejecting Christ. It's a serious thing. Do you think that we could push Christ aside and there's nothing? Do you think we could just reject his sacrifice and think that everything's gonna be fine? Do we? I don't believe that we will be. I think there's consequences. And what the author does is after giving this warning, he, he calls on them in verse 32. He says, but recall the former days when after... <clears throat> And after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle. That, that's a, that word con, has the idea of conflict. It's used often of a kind of an athletic contest. That a hard, con, hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Look what he says. He's telling them, hey, recall those days when you went through this. So they, we're not talking about people who hadn't gone through difficulty. They went through great difficulty. But he's saying, I know that your faith was genuine because you endured those things. You overcame them because you knew your possession was abiding one. It was abiding forever in what you had in Christ. It's a better possession it's better for what you had. He says, he's calling them back. And that's why he says in verse 35, he says, therefore do not throw away your confidence. And literally that word throw away literally means kind of a reckless rejection. Don't just recklessly throw it away. Don't recklessly throw away your faith. Don't discount your faith. Though you may be accused, though you may be laughed on, though you may be told that you're a fool, don't throw that to the side. And dear, man, our, our students today and our college kids, man, don't lose that. You're gonna have many people tell you how, how this thing's a farce. And you look back and you see who Jesus is. Because if you go that way, what else is there? And what they'll tell you is yourself, that within you, they didn't, your own being there's the divine. And your own wisdom and your own intellect, as if a finite being can define an infinite being. 
Like we have the ability and all of our knowledge to, to be able to comprehend the things of God. And, but they will tell you that. And you hang on to this truth. And don't recklessly throw it away or throw away your confidence, which has great reward, verse 36, for you have need of endurance. I've underlined that. I've written it down in a couple of places as a result of this study to remind me that I need endurance. Some of you this morning need endurance. Some of you may be struggling with your faith. Life has been tough, it's been hard, you've been dealt blows, you've been struggling with things, and you need endurance. Don't let your faith, don't let your faith grow light. It's what you have. He says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you realize you cannot walk in the Christian life and not take into account the will of God in your life. You can't separate those. You can't approach the scriptures and it become what I think they said. It can't be what I think God means. It can't be those things. It's not I, it's him, it's his will. And to walk after Christ requires me abiding my life according to his will and his purposes. You can't do both. You can't separate our Christian life from the will of God. Because it, becomes a, it comes down to the things that I don't understand, that I trust and rely and place my faith in the reliability of what God said he will do. He says, for you have need of encouragement, or endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised, that God will do exactly what he said he would do. Verse 37, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, I believe that. Verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I my, <clears throat> my soul has no pleasure in it. Did you hear what he said? The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith in the sacrifice of Christ and all that he's done and the new and living way that he's made available, it's by faith. It's by faith, dear people of God. Look what he says in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I'm crying out to you, whether you're online or you're here this morning, don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. The righteous shall live by faith in what God has said he is gonna do. There's no other name under heaven by which Anyone could be saved in the name of Jesus. There's one mediator between God and us, and it's our mediator, Jesus Christ. There's no other path. Don't shrink back. Don't let the world beat you down to a place that you grow weary in your faith. God forbid, don't, dear people of God. Don't shrink back. Don't be deceived in the midst of our culture that is saying all things about God and his word. Don't shrink back. You hang on to your confession of hope. You draw near to your God with a full assurance of faith. And you don't neglect, you don't neglect gathering 
You don't isolate, but you draw near and you encourage one another more and more as you see the day drawing near. Dear people of God, stand in faith. Stand with me in faith. Stand with our elders in faith. Stand with those who by faith do not shrink back, though the world delivers blow after blow after blow after blow. It does not matter. Though the, 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 the waves of the sea smash against the rock, the rock remains. Why? Because our rock is Christ. We built our house on Christ. And the sea of, of doubt and the sea of controversy and the sea of, 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 of blasphemy crashes against it, but it's faith that stands and makes us abiding. I could go, people, do not grow weary. Do not grow weary. Let's pray. Father God, Father, I just lift up to you, your people. I know there's people that are listening online and there's people here, Father, that, that have grown weary in their, in their walks, especially this year with everything that's been going on. There's been multiple battles and I can't even mention them all. And I know, Father, there, there's struggles and, you, and we begin to wonder, where are you, Father, sometimes? But we come back to the cross that God, you demonstrated in the work of Jesus, you demonstrated in him your love, your mercy, your, your grace, your power to overcome sin and death. And we live. And we don't approach you, Father, with gifts and offerings. We don't approach you with, with actions and deeds, but Father, we approach you with faith, knowing that what you said to be true. In your name we pray, amen.